This is a When Walls Can Talk network podcast. The content of this episode is intended for mature audiences and includes graphic depictions of suicide and depression. Listener discretion is advised. Sources for today's episode can be found in the show notes, but sincere credit and thank you goes to Duncan Fife and the article Overland Limited from the Campo Santo Quarterly Review, which is quoted in part in this episode. We are finally here, y'all, and it is finally time. Welcome to Season 3 of When Walls Can Talk, the podcast. I am your host, researcher, and paranormal adventurer, Jeremy Haig. Let's start this season out with a famous one. Tune into any paranormal investigation television show, and I can guarantee that you will have heard this name. If not, allow me to have the honor of introducing you to what has been labeled America's Most Haunted Home. On today's episode, we examine the question... How does the steeped history of a horror-stricken land affect the future residents that are bold enough, or foolish enough, to call it home? But before we answer that question, as always, let's go back to the beginning. Yankee Jim Robertson arrived in San Diego in the summer of 1852. It's not known for sure where he picked up the name Yankee, although it's likely that the tall, blonde Canadian was a former sailor who came to California in 1842 after serving in the Navy. Why Yankee Jim came to San Diego is also a source of debate. There are those who insist he was a good-natured man who came to town with his two friends seeking a place to live. Yet there are others who speculate the men came as a part of a crime spree that was supposed to lead them to a retirement in Mexico. Yankee Jim arrived in San Diego as the city was struggling with bankruptcy. The ensuing crime and economic tensions had pushed tempers to an all-time high and outsiders were being blamed for every problem in town. Public opinion of Yankee Jim would go from bad to worse as he attempted to steal the 30-ton pilot boat Plotus docked in San Diego Bay. Pursued by vigilantes, Yankee Jim escaped by jumping into a rowboat where he eventually went across the bay and landed in Point Loma. The rowboat Robinson stole belonged to the city of San Diego, and it was, somehow, the only one they owned. He was captured several hours later when he stopped at a ranch asking for food and water. The rancher became suspicious when he remembered hearing of the townspeople searching for a tall stranger in a red shirt. Realizing Yankee Jim was the wanted man, the rancher grabbed a sword. At the same time, Yankee Jim bolted with the rancher and his wife in hot pursuit. The chase ended when the rancher smashed the rusty sword over Yankee Jim's head. The rancher then lashed the battered man to a mule and walked him back to town. Within days of being captured, the county placed Yankee Jim and his two friends on trial. At first, Yankee Jim thought the whole thing was a skit designed to scare him. 
The jury was made up of some of the men who had originally chased him, and Judge Benjamin Hayes was drunk through most of the trial. The trial began with Prosecutor James W. Robinson, of no relation to Yankee Jim, telling the jury that Yankee Jim came to town to steal San Diego's only ship to commit piracy on the high seas. The proceedings were so amusing to Yankee Jim, he had to be told several times to stop laughing. In the end, he found it was no joke. After a short deliberation, the jury reached a verdict and sentenced the man to death. Judge Hayes agreed, and Yankee Jim was sentenced to die by hanging the very next day. While Yankee Jim's sentence may seem harsh and swift for modern-day standards, for some jury members the hanging couldn't come soon enough. They wanted to take him outside and lynch him immediately following the trial. Cooler heads prevailed, and the law that required a jury to wait 24 hours before hanging was followed. Without a jail to house Yankee Jim in, he was shackled to a tree to await his sentence. The hanging took place on August 18th on the site of what is now the Whaley House. As soon as Yankee Jim saw the rope, he knew the last 24 hours of his life had been very real. However, death came extremely slowly for the tall Canadian, as the scaffolding attached to a wagon was not high enough for his six-foot, three-inch frame, and he spent half an hour strangling to death on the noose, swinging like a pendulum. The execution of Yankee Jim should have brought closure to one of the most sensational cases of 1852, but come to find out, it was only the beginning. Shortly after his hanging, some citizens reported seeing his ghost in the area of the gallows. After the Whaley House was built, on the same location in 1857, spirit sightings continued, mainly in the room and staircase directly over where the gallows once stood. Some witnesses experienced hearing noises in the upper floors, but some people reported actually seeing Yankee Jim himself. In 1860, Thomas Whaley wrote in his journal he often heard the footsteps upstairs and thought they belonged to the very same condemned Canadian. Thomas Whaley himself not only helped capture the condemned man, but was witness to the scene of the execution. This is where our tale truly begins. This is the story of the infamous hauntings of the Whaley House, named by many as America's most haunted home. Throughout the ages, Man has repeated the same earnest saying, more of a question really, or perhaps even a plea, if these walls could talk. But what if they do, and always have? Perhaps their stories, memories, and messages are all around us, if only we would take the moment to listen. On this podcast, we reinvestigate legends and tales of the past and allow the echoes of their lessons to live on once again, informing us, educating us, and sharing new and unique insight into the inner workings of the paranormal and spiritual world. Will you dare to listen? This is When Walls Can Talk, the podcast.
Overwhelmingly praised as the first of its kind and the finest home in Southern California, the Whaley House was a central pillar of the 19th century Old Town community of San Diego. Besides being the Whaley family home, it was also San Diego's first commercial theater, the county courthouse, a general store, and much more. The legendary Whaley House is widely regarded as one of the most iconic landmarks in San Diego, from its rich Greek Revival architecture style and authentic decor, to its mysterious past and unrivaled haunted prestige. It's no wonder this home attracts visitors from all over the world, including paranormal investigators from nearly every ghost-hunting television show in existence. But let's take a step back, four years before Yankee Jim's arrival in San Diego. Thomas Whaley arrived in California around 1849 during the famous California Gold Rush. Upon arrival, he set up a store with George Wardle on Montgomery Street in San Francisco. It was there that he sold hardware and woodwork from his family's New York business, Pye and Whaley, as well as offering mining equipment and utensils on consignment. Born on October 5, 1823 in New York City, the young entrepreneur came from a Scots-Irish family, the seventh child in a family of ten, which immigrated to Plymouth, Massachusetts in 1722. Alexander Whaley, Thomas's great-grandfather, was a gunsmith and himself participated in the Boston Tea Party. During the Revolutionary War, he provided flintlock muskets for soldiers and the use of his house on Long Island by the general and later first president, George Washington. Thomas's father, Thomas Whaley, carried on the family gunsmith business and served in the New York militia during the War of 1812. He married Rachel Pye, whose father, William, manufactured locks in Brooklyn. Whaley's entrepreneurial spirit and sharp business acumen, acquired in part from his education at the Washington Institute, helped him flourish in San Francisco. Thomas Whaley capitalized on his success by establishing his own store on Montgomery Street. Whaley set up various businesses with Franklin, Ephraim Morse, Francis Hilton, and even his own brother, Henry, and amassed enough money to return to New York to marry his sweetheart, Anna Eloise de Lunay, the daughter of French-born parents, on May 14, 1853. Shortly after their marriage, Thomas and Anna returned to San Diego to continue his domination on December 7, 1853. By August 22, 1857, Thomas Whaley had purchased some land and set forth on his journey to build the finest home in California, now known as the Whaley House. Thomas Whaley began construction of his new home and proclaimed, quote, My new house, when completed, will be the handsomest, most comfortable and convenient place in town or within 150 miles of here. The two-story Greek Revival House was designed by Thomas Whaley himself and made from bricks created in Whaley's very own brickyard on Condé Street. The house was the first of its kind and cost more than $10,000 when completed. Furnished with mahogany and rosewood furniture, Brussels carpets, and damask drapes, the Whaley House was overwhelmingly praised as, quote, the first of its kind and finest home in Southern California. From 1869 through 1871, the Whaley House became the gathering place for the entire San Diego community. Besides being the Whaley family home, it also served as San Diego's first commercial theater. The county courthouse, originally intended to be the home granary or storeroom for grain away from animals and weather, and a general store. 
At various other times, the home was also used for countless other activities, like a billiards hall, dairy, Sunday school and schoolhouse, and so much more we have yet to find full documentation for. For $65 a month, the County of San Diego leased the courtroom and three of the upstairs bedrooms, and was later a focal point in a battle between Old Town residents and New Town residents. The San Diego County government had been renting a portion of the Whaley House for its offices and records. Whaley offered several times to sell the house to the county, but the offer was ignored. Newtowners of San Diego demanded that the county offices and records be moved to Newtown. Yet, despite threats of armed resistance from the old towners, the records were moved on March 31, 1871, effectively shifting the focus of the city to Newtown. In October 1868, while the family was not actively residing in the home for reasons we will get to in just a moment, an upstairs family bedroom was converted into a theater after Thomas Whaley rented out the room to the Tanner Troop, a local theater troupe traveling through San Diego at the time. For the troupe's opening night performance, the small room accommodated a stage, a few benches, and an astonishing 150 guests, although it was mostly standing room only and the ladies had been advised to not wear their hoop skirts or petticoats that evening to allow for more room. The operator of the theater and theater troupe, Thomas Tanner, strangely died just 17 days after their opening night in the home, suspected to be of syphilis. His death was very strange, as it was the second death to occur within its four walls, only ten years after the Whaley's first son passed. Ironically, he too was named Thomas. Perhaps the curse that is assumed to be on the property did claim a Thomas, but perhaps not the right one. His troop disbanded by the end of January 1869 and moved out of the property. Shortly after the theater troop departed, the Whaley and Crossweight General Store, which was a wholesale and retail shop which sold anything and everything, including liquor with a liquor license provided by the judge serving in the courtroom just on the other side of the wall, opened on the same property. It's believed that the judge himself was one of the Whaley's best customers, especially when it came to the sale of alcohol. By 1858, Thomas and Anna Whaley had produced three children. Francis Hinton, born in 1854 and named after one of his business partners. Thomas Jr., born August 18, 1856, who tragically died of scarlet fever at just 18 months of age and Anna Amelia, born June 27, 1858. The same year as the tragic death of his infant Thomas, his nearby general store was burned to the ground in an arson, which resulted in the family fleeing to San Francisco, where the Whaley's welcomed three more children, George Hayes Wrinkle, born November 5, 1860, Violet Eloise, born October 14, 1862, and Corian Lillian, September 4, 1864. It was strongly believed by the Whaley family, due to the recent tragedies that had befell their family, the tragic death of their 18-month-old son, and the loss of at least one of their businesses in a fire, that they were beginning to experience the effects of a curse on their land, likely as a result of the gallows that used to stand on the family lot, and caused them to flee the home to San Francisco. The alleged family curse followed them there, resulting in a seesaw of earthquakes and additional fires while residing in San Francisco, and only ten years later the family was forced yet again to return to San Diego and take up residence once again in the Whaley home. 
It was during this vacancy that the majority of their tenants moved in, including the theater troupe. The family had some joy to celebrate on January 5th, 1882, when Violet Eloise Whaley and Anna Amelia Whaley were both married. Violet, then 19 years old, married George T. Bertolacci, and Anna Amelia wed her first cousin, John T. Whaley, son of Henry Hurst Whaley, both inside the family home. She was 22. Thomas Whaley, Violet's father, seemed to prefer Violet's match, as did she, and showed his happiness with wonderful gifts at their wedding. He even gifted George money for their honeymoon at the Palace Hotel, which occupied an entire city block of San Francisco real estate. It was claimed to be the largest hotel anywhere, standing seven stories adorned with Roman columns and little candelabras of electric light, crowned by a latticework of iron and glass. Mr. Whaley gave the new couple money to stay in an elaborate suite, surely costing upwards of $7, or about $200 a night today, and to buy first-class tickets on the new Overland train bound for Chicago via Omaha. A first-class ticket on the Overland train cost $134.50, an equivalent of $2,700 a ticket today. From there, the couple planned to travel onward to New York, where George was a civil servant, and where their new life would begin. But this was not to be. When Violet awoke alone the next day, George was gone, and with him, their suitcases, her pocketbook, all of her jewelry, and even the wedding ring from her finger. George T. Bertolacci, as it turned out, was an epic con artist, and as Violet and her family later learned, had only married her for the substantial dowry he believed he would collect. He had several aliases, George, Edson, and was supposedly steward of the poorhouse in Old Town San Diego at the time of the marriage. Panicked, she dressed herself with as much haste as possible when fitting a corset and bustle, and paying no attention to her hair or face, fled from the hotel out onto Montgomery Street. She ran, as best she could in her disordered state, east on market, pushing past pedestrians and trying, yet failing, to keep pace with the streetcars. She did not remember San Francisco very well, but had recited this route to George innumerable times for fear he would forget. The Overland train departed from Oakland Long Wharf, which meant that if George had gone ahead, he would have gone by ferry, and perhaps she could find him at the bay, unless he was at the platform already, awaiting the train's approach. Violet found George in line for the ferry, and, out of breath, she doubled over beside him, the corset forcing her to take short, repeated gasps. She appeared to all around her as hysterical. Oh, V, he noticed her. Sorry about all of this, you know. It wasn't anything personal. Some sleepy-eyed saloon girl hung off his arm. I don't... Who is this? Violet managed. Who is this person? Is she wearing my wedding ring? Look, don't get your back up. It's over now and nobody's hurt, so why don't you just bounce? Her heart pounded against her chest. I want you to put a stop to this right away, her eyes choking with hot tears. Do the right thing and come back with me this minute. <laughs> now she's boohooing, muttered the saloon girl. George procured the ferry tickets from the attendant. Mr. and Mrs. George T. Bertolacci for the Overland from Oakland. I'm Mrs. George Bertolacci, Violet insisted. The attendant looked back and forth between the two women. Pardon me, ma'am, what's your name? He asked George's girl. Oh, my name is Violet Bertolacci, sir. The attendant gave half a shrug. 
Miss, you'd better leave, he told Violet. I'd rather not involve the police. George tipped his hat to the man and without sparing even a second's hesitation or even a quick glance over the shoulder, strolled up the gangplank and disappeared. Violet, tear-stricken, watched from the wharf as the ferry chugged into the choppy motion along the water. What happened after that, Violet could not completely remember. In a daze, she turned back onto Market Street and then started walking south in the direction of home. She walked for so long that her feet were bloodied and raw, and when she stopped inside of a saloon to take off her shoes, she was yelled at. Standing outside by the horses, she tore strips of silk from her dress and bound them about the soles of her feet. Later, she would recall that she had hitched rides on the back of wagons, maybe besides animals or groceries, and abandoned her bustle on the side of the road. She would also recall sitting in the backs of coaches or carriages and the impertinent glances and attentions she received from other passengers. She lost the corset somewhere along the way, where exactly she did not know, but she remembered that powerful exhale of breath and the racking sobs that followed, attracting sympathetic glances from strangers. She remembered how low her hair hung down her back and how filthy it must have been. She remembered begging for water and how just a drop might restore the texture of her lips. She remembered not seeing water again until, from very far away, she saw glimpses of the Pacific Ocean yet again, which meant that somehow, and after however many days, she was back in San Diego. She walked the dusty roads past familiar homes and cemeteries until she felt the boards of the front porch creak underneath her bloodied feet, and she crumpled into a tiny heap outside her parents' home. Yet despite the struggles she endured to return home, this is where her troubles would begin. Her parents, of course, were filled with concern for her well-being. While she recuperated under the direction of their physician, her parents attended to her every comfort and assured her that she was safe and well. Yet the worry was plain on their faces, and in good time, Violet began to understand the deeper meaning of it. Much about her return to San Diego had been shared throughout the town, and was a wild scandal. It was entirely unladylike to appear in the town as she did, unexpected, unchaperoned, and missing her new husband, dressed in shredded finery stained with mud and blood. It was vulgar to the extreme, and Violet knew it. The Herald, whose editor was an old enemy of her father's from his days on the city board of trustees, wrote gleefully that Thomas Whaley's second daughter had made a complete spectacle of herself. Reportedly, her debasement had gravely offended some high-ranking members of Old Town Society, all of whom opted to be quoted in the paper anonymously. Go figure. Violet's father told her that all the anonymous quotations were inventions by the newspaper, and Violet thought this was utterly irrelevant. As time passed, members of society both high and low would put their names to the disapproval of Violet. The Whaley household was well known for its evening parties and receptions prior, and the Whaley women well known as great hostesses. After Violet's reappearance, these events generated countless excuses rather than attendance. On the 4th of July, the Whaleys traditionally staged a boys' and girls' dance at the house, preceded by a town picnic in Roses Canyon. That year, instead, Violet sat alone in the girls' bedroom, reading notes from old town families, all professing regret that prior engagements would prevent them from attending. 
the gall of these people who had never been blessed with competing engagements in their entire lives. If you probably couldn't tell, I'm obsessed with creating podcasts. As I've grown as a creator, I needed a hosting and distribution platform that's capable of growing alongside me. So that's why I use Buzzsprout. Buzzsprout has already helped over 100,000 people make, distribute, grow, and monetize their show. You'll get a great-looking podcast website, audio players that you can drop into other websites, detailed analytics to see how people are listening, tools to promote your episodes, and so much more. Podcasting shouldn't be hard if you work with the right partners, and that's why I love Buzzsprout. Don't wait. Get your message out into the world today by using my affiliate link in the show notes and get a $20 Amazon gift card. The team at Buzzsprout is passionate about helping people like you succeed and achieve all of your podcasting goals. Join the over 100,000 of us already using Buzzsprout to get our message out and watch your show take off. See you out there, creators. Violet was invited to one dance that year, the birthday party of Emily Balfour, who, it should be noted, was not a friend, although their mothers were close. Emily sat Violet in the parlor upon her arrival and excused herself, never to return for the remainder of the evening. Emily did not speak to Violet again the whole night. The guests seemed to avoid Violet's gaze, except for Hudson Ames, who had once told her, I'm desperately in love with you, so please don't marry that idiot but today whose eyes met hers across the parlor and instantly darted away as though he had been caught spying on a woman in her bedroom. Violet, to her shame, waited over an hour before getting up to leave. Months later, Violet proposed to obtain an official divorce, and that was met with strong resistance. Violet asked why she should not be entitled to a divorce from a husband who stole from her and left her to die in a foreign city and the courthouse clerk did not argue with this, but commented that it was dishonorable to seek divorce. The family physician took an interest in Violet's melancholia, which, along with her disinterest in attending events or even getting out of bed, he considered symptomatic of some kind of mental aberration. Her parents protested the seriousness of the diagnosis, but could not otherwise explain Violet's moody, distant behavior which gripped her for months. I am worthless, she had taken to saying, or I am a horrible person. No, you are not, Lily, her sister would say, before departing the house for a county fair or ball to which Violet was unwelcome. On the 5th of July, 1885, Violet jumped into a well in an attempt to take her own life in the 35-foot-deep cistern behind the house. Her father ran outside after hearing Violet's screams for help, finding her hanging by her fingertips from the edge, her bare feet waving around in the darkness. Violet was lifted to safety and nobody in the family ever remarked upon the strange episode again. That night, Violet remembered arriving in San Francisco with George and how the proprietor at the Palace Hotel had treated her. He had received her so casually and with such respect as if there were no reason why Violet should not be a rich married woman, staying in the grandest suite at the grandest hotel in the world, and deferred to appropriately. Didn't that idea make so much sense then? And now she was a woman who had thrown herself into a well in the hopes of ending her own life. 
and nobody commented on that or found it particularly unusual. Was this just expected of her now? Was this just the person that she was? Without society to accompany her, Violet spent more time alone in the house, reading novels and poetry in her father's library. She was taken with one particular passage from a collection of Thomas Hood, which she meticulously reproduced in her copybook. The bleak wind of March made her tremble and shiver, but not the dark arch or the black flowing river. Mad from life's history, glad to death's mystery, swift to be hurled anywhere, anywhere out of the world. Yes, that's it, thought Violet, how true a representation, and yet how irresponsible she thought it was to write and publish something that nakedly emotional, when it could be read by any sort of person in goodness knows what sort of state, an observation that did not prevent her from attempting to write poetry of her own. There is a place where we will never go, on a sheet of notebook paper that she promptly tore out of the copybook and threw away. Her mother remarked that Violet's activities had turned unwholesome, a comment she made not knowing about the poetry, but knowing about Violet's increasingly common trips to the cemetery across the street, by herself, often for hours at a time. If she wasn't an odd pariah in San Diego already, Violet figured, she certainly would be now, though if she were not a pariah in the first place, she would not have sought solace in the cemetery, and so on and so on. It was simply too tedious for her to think that deeply about. El Campo Santo Cemetery was a small tract of land, of loose brown soil and patches of scraggly grass here and there, whose few internments were marked with modest crosses of white pine or red brick arranged flat on the ground. Violet often sat in the shadow of a knotted oak tree that worked in tandem with her bonnet to keep her safe from the sun. She could see her house from there across the dusty expanse. Campo Santo was not for good people. It was a place to bury criminals or strangers, and the lack of compassion afforded those souls by the living festered there inside of her like a wound. It was not a place for Violet Whaley, living or dead. Violet already knew where she was to be buried, thanks to her parents, expansive and stately Mount Hope Cemetery seven miles away, built so that the settlers like her father could be remembered at their appropriate level. There was already a Whaley family plot there, as of yet unoccupied. Violet supposed they all thought that their money would buy them dignity in death, like they would be buried in Mount Hope looking beautiful and virginal in their finest dress, and Mount Hope would keep them looking that way, perfectly preserved forever like pharaohs. At Campo Santo, Violet visited the graves of forgotten descendants, she presumed, like Yankee Jim Robinson, who was hanged in 1852 on the very land where her house now stood. She knew her father had been present at the hanging, but what she knew of James Robinson she'd heard from other people. Her father refused to discuss it. Then there was the grave of Henry Rippey, a wandering drunk trampled by a horse. The story on Rippey went that he had been chased out of San Francisco in the 1860s when, in a drunken episode, he kicked a stray dog down a flight of stairs. The dog happened to be a local legend, famed for his heroic deeds and much beloved by the people of San Francisco. That night when she returned home to the Whaley family dinner table, celebrations were in order. Her sister Lily was to be engaged, having chosen from a pool of well-to-do interchangeable suitors. 
Violet hunched over her uneaten supper, feeling like she had been hollowed out, as her mother hemmed and hawed about how Violet could still be involved somehow. She could lend a hand, perhaps, with the duties of penning the invitation cards, directing the waiters to the tablecloths and napkins, and ensuring that the ladies' room would be fully stocked with hairpins and pincushions. Not, of course, how it used to be, when Violet was a girl of fifteen or sixteen, in a brand new dress with a ribbon in her hair, who would welcome the guests of her family with a polite smile and inquire about their day as she showed them to the dressing room. Back then, when everyone was in the dressing room, it was her job to flit from one conversation to another like a firefly, and then, always, every night, when the clock struck ten, her father would announce her and she would sit down at the grand piano, smoothing her dress, and the whole room would stop to hear her play. And she shut her eyes gently and let her hands sing across the keys, and one time she opened them and saw her father dabbing away a tear from his eye. He was so proud then. I'm not that person anymore, she told herself. I do not make people proud. On the morning of August 18th, 1885, Violet awoke very early, left her room at about six o'clock. She had convinced her family, you see, that she was doing well, that she was doing better, enough that they provided her a set of house keys, which allowed her access to her demise. Trying not to wake anybody in the house, she used the keys to enter her father's bureau and removed his revolver from its locked box. She wandered outside into the yard with the gun hanging from her fingers, went to the privy, and shot herself in the chest where she hoped her heart lie. Her father, upon hearing the gunshot, ran outside, recovered his daughter from the privy and carried her into the house, laying her down on the low chaise under the window in the back parlor, before running into town to try and find help. Although her official autopsy report, as well as the official inquest following her death, concluded that she had indeed shot herself in the heart, it was more likely that she hit one of her lungs instead as she took some 15 to 20 minutes to bleed to death with her family at her side, drowning in her own blood. She was 22 years of age. Her suicide note read thus, quoting her favorite poem, Mad from life's history, swift to death's mystery, glad to be hurled anywhere, anywhere out of this world. There was an official inquest, August 19, 1885, the day following Violet's suicide, which looked deeply into the details of her death. Violet's younger sister Lillian was called as a witness in this inquest. When asked why her sister had desired to kill herself, Lillian's reply was, quote, I don't know why. I think she was tired of life, tired of living here, thought no one cared for her and that her life was a burden. At the time of Violet's death, Lillian was, as mentioned, herself engaged. However, due to the taboo nature of suicide in this time period, her fiancé broke off the engagement. Three months after Violet's death, Mr. Thomas Whaley, overwhelmed by his own grief, began the process of building a separate residence, a single-story frame home for his family on 933 State Street, and the family swiftly vacated the Whaley house 
very likely to escape the memory of the recent tragedy. Thomas Whaley would die shortly afterwards from heart issues, and the Whaley house would fall into disrepair, uninhabited until a then-widowed Mrs. Whaley and several of her children returned to the home in 1909. In late 1909, Francis Whaley undertook the restoration of the building and turned the home into a tourist attraction, where he posted signs promoting its historical nature and entertained visitors with his guitar. Anna Whaley, Thomas's widow, Corian Lillian, Francis, and George all lived in the old Whaley house in 1912. On February 24, 1913, Anna Whaley died at 80 years of age. A year later, Francis Whaley died on November 19, 1914. George Whaley died on January 5, 1928 in San Diego, and Corianne Lillian Whaley continued residency in the house until her death in 1953, resulting in a death of six Whaley family members within the house. This on top of three confirmed executions that happened on the property before they moved. Nine deaths on the land. After this history of success and deaths, the Whaley House remains well known as a haunted home. It is said the guests and the staff from time to time will catch a glimpse of the ghost of a Whaley family member who died inside the home, such as baby Thomas Jr., Violet, Anna, Francis, George, or Corianne Lillian Whaley. For more than a century and a half, many visitors to the Whaley House have reported feeling a choking sensation in the parlor when they walk onto the spot where Yankee Jim was hung from the back of a wagon, the most feared ghost of all those reported within the Whaley home. It is an unsubstantiated claim that the gallows itself remained in place as one half of the home was constructed and was either built into the structure itself or dismantled and its lumber used to build the home, as lumber was scarce, you see but these claims have been unsubstantiated. While unsubstantiated, it is to be noted that this story comes from an early caretaker for the museum itself, so I find its story quite intriguing. Thomas Whaley himself regularly remarked to his daughter Lillian of hearing footsteps of an individual on the upper floors and believing that to be the spirit of Yankee Jim. Even Anna Whaley wrote repeatedly in her letters of spirits in the home, so it was believed to be haunted from as early as the 1880s. In 1964, television personality Regis Philbin and a companion tried to spend a night in the house. Around 2.30 a.m., they swore they saw someone, or something, walk from the study into the music room. When they shined a flashlight on the mysterious guest, it vanished into thin air. The men fled, and the haunted house reputation exploded. Several years after Philbin's encounter, a college class was reenacting the trial of Yankee Jim in the Whaley House courtroom, which remains intact today. When several members of the mock jury reported seeing Yankee Jim's ghosts, the class fled in terror. Today, the Whaley House is reported to be the home of many spirits, including the Whaley family, and stands as one of two officially registered haunted houses in California. With hundreds of sightings of ghosts, spirits, aberrations, and specters, some paranormal experts call it the most haunted house in America. The first ghost commonly experienced in the Whaley home is Thomas Jr., whose infant cries are often reported likely an echo from his untimely death at 18 months from scarlet fever. 
In the nursery still stands a rocking chair, believed by many to be the chair that Anna Whaley herself likely rocked him to sleep in, and held him till his death. In one of the back bedrooms as well as the second floor bathroom, believed to have belonged to Violet Whaley, visitors report an overwhelming sensation of grief and sadness that only passes when you leave the area or depart the home itself. Another story comes from the mouth of a former Whaley House employee. People have reported seeing the apparition of a little girl in the dining room. The employee claims it to be the spirit of an Anna Bell Washburn, a playmate of the Whaley children. The story goes that while she was outside playing, Anna ran headlong into a low-hanging clothesline, breaking her neck. Thomas then found her and placed her in the dining room where she died upon the table. Yet, no record of the incident or the child is known to exist. So if Annabelle Washburn never existed, who is haunting the dining room? Psychics and investigators often experience strange sensations in and around the courtroom, including the occasional apparition of a woman in the back corner of the jury box, and the piercing feeling of being watched. According to some sensitives, they even claim this corner is some form of paranormal vortex, allowing activity to come in and out of the home. BuzzFeed Unsolved's host experienced the creaking of a chair next to them as though someone sat by at their side, an unexplained flashlight suddenly losing power, and extreme bouts of dizziness in the courtroom during investigations. Even the members of the San Diego Police Department have experienced strange occurrences at the home. About 35 years ago, an agent was dispatched to the home after a 911 call was made, reporting a woman crying outside the building. What the police officer experienced was so bizarre, he refused to speak about it until his confidential retirement letter was submitted decades later. When he arrived to the property, he saw, quote, a woman at the back of the house crying, eerily close to where Violet Whaley had taken her own life, and she was noted to be in period clothing. The officer asked, ma'am, are you all right? To which the woman looked up at him and smiled, but by the time the beam of light from the officer's flashlight hit the place where she stood, it shone straight through her. She had disappeared. The home has also played host to a phantom dog and phantom cat, both of which were beloved pets of the Whaley's in centuries past. Thomas Whaley himself has often been seen standing on the upper landing, where one shocked and disturbed witness described him as dressed in a frock coat with pantaloons, and reportedly often blows tobacco smoke in visitors' faces, resulting in a sudden but fleeting smell of pipe. Mrs. Anna Whaley is the most common spirit in the house. People can smell her potent French perfume and see her in one of the downstairs rooms or perhaps in the garden. Perhaps it's fitting that in the afterlife, she provides a comforting presence rather than a malicious one. More often than not, she appears to young people in an effort to welcome them and to interact. She is often seen in a green gingham dress, sipping tea in the parlor, where it is believed the actual location of Yankee Jim's hanging spot was located, and the very room where Violet herself was brought after her self-inflicted gunshot, and would later pass away. In this exact spot, under the archway that separates the living room from the parlor, BuzzFeed Unsolved host Ryan Bergara experienced whispering in his ear so pronounced he assumed it to be a prank from his co-host Shane. Upon discovering he was alone in the room, he screamed in shock. Host of Holger Files, David 
and host of Holzer Files and legendary paranormal investigator and historian Dave Schrader was reviewing EVP recordings in the same spot directly under the arch when, on camera, he was shoved from the hips so aggressively he fell to the floor. If you re-examine the footage in the episode, you can see that the force is so strong it lifts his entire body off the floor. Anna Whaley herself had run-ins with the modern-day San Diego Police Department as well. One night, a tour guide named Victor Santana was setting the alarm for the property, but as he was keying in the code, a woman whispered in his ear, Why are you here? Before he had a chance to complete the alarm, he ran from the building, causing it to go off and for a police officer to arrive at the scene. He, too, entered the building and reported, quote, A woman in a green dress in the parlor, but by the time additional backup had arrived, the woman had vanished. Hunting through online sources like reviews and Reddit threads, there are countless stories of visitors and tour attendees being afflicted by various forms of paranormal activity, stabbing feelings in their body, waves of unexplained grief, and so much more. Today, the Whaley House stands as a museum, allowing guests to visit for tours during the day and in the evening hours. A monument to a moment in a family's grief-stricken life. And now we return to the question I posed at the beginning of the episode. How is a family affected when they choose to live on a land or on a property so grief-stricken, so scattered, so scarred by the early memories of the murders of Yankee Jim Robinson and countless others that were hung on this land? I think it's clear that the psychic imprint of these memories does, in fact, live on and affect those who choose to make lands like this their home. Visiting the Whaley House, I challenge you to see what you experience. What do you feel? How does its memory affect you? Although no one has lived here in the home since 1953, The spirits of the dead are clearly still there, waiting for visitors, waiting for a chance to tell their message and tell their story. Psychic imprints layered upon walls, wallpaper, mirrors, lights, furniture, and tables. Workers on site and guests who've toured the house tell many accounts of unusual and spooky encounters. Some say they've seen the figure looking out the upstairs window long after the house has been closed for the day. Others have seen curtains moving, although all the windows in the home have been sealed shut. The sounds of children running up and down the stairs can be heard without anyone being seen. Footsteps, cold spots, the appearance and disappearance of shadows have all been seen, felt, and heard by guests. But are these stories true? Now all there is to do is to come explore and decide for yourself. This has been an episode of When Walls Can Talk, the podcast, Season 3. I am your host, researcher, and paranormal adventurer, Jeremy Hegg. Thank you for rejoining us for this inaugural episode, and please know that the best is still to come. 
I'm so excited for everything we have planned for this season, so be sure to check out my Instagram at whenwallscantalk with underscores for spaces to make sure that you are updated on all future releases, as well as our sister season at Ghost Besties the Pod. Visit my website at www.whenwallscantalktarot.com to visit our merch store, check out our other offerings, and schedule your own tarot reading. That's it for today, my spiritual renegades, and I'll catch you next week for a brand new episode of When Walls Can Talk.